This is a word fitly spoken by words about reading the scripture, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We hear it a word fitly spoken aimed to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, just doing the intro <laughs> this time around. This episode's a little bit different. Reverend Heidi is with special guest Professor Mark DeGarmo, Professor of Religious Studies at Bethany Lutheran College in Mankato, Minnesota. And this interview focuses primarily on the history of Norwegian Lutheran churches in America through the lens of Reverend U.V. Corin. So we thought we'd hand it over to our resident Scandinavian, since this is his people and his history. So it's going to be a great interview, folks. I think you'll love it. Again, this is Zellan Heidi and Professor Mark DeGarmo talking Norwegian Lutherans in America and Reverend U.V. Corin. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zellan Heidi, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Professor Mark DeGarmo, here to talk about Norwegian Lutheranism in America, and in particular, U.V. Corin and his history in all of that. So we welcome you to the podcast, Mark, and why don't you tell our listeners something about yourself? Okay, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I grew up in southwest Wisconsin on a farm, and my father was a livestock dealer, so I <laughs> was not of a church, well, I was of church family, but not a pastoral family or anything like that. I was always interested in church as a little kid. I grew sure. up in the Wisconsin Synod, but my heritage was Norwegian on my mom's side, and so that's how I always connected with things, and so it always felt a little bit different. In high school, I learned about the ELS, which had Norwegian heritage, and it was in fellowship with Wisconsin Synod, so I thought that was a really intriguing thing. I studied at Lutheran High School near La Crosse, Wisconsin, and then I studied at Dr. Martin Luther College, which is now Martin Luther College in New Ulm, Minnesota, and I studied music, and I studied religion and education, and then mostly on my own, I studied languages. Norwegian was always something I was interested in. I loved Latin and German in high school and just always been something I've loved to do. I'm a musician, I'm a translator, a teacher various things. Sure. What interested you in Koran? I mean, how did you get attracted to the study of, of the Norwegian history in, in America in that way? Okay. Well, actually, after I graduated from college, then I taught organ and piano for one year. And then I went on to Bethany Lutheran Theological Seminary here in Mankato, which is the ELS seminary. And it was a great fit for me because it connected with my Norwegian heritage, but it also was the confessional Lutheranism that I came to love and came to know even more, especially here at Bethany. It was a great thing. And uh, Corin, Ottesen, and Preuss, those were the three names that we always heard as, as the great fathers, the great leaders of the early Norwegian Synod. And then when I did my vicarage, I was serving in churches that Corin had established or Corin had first served. Actually, his oh, really? first call was to Northeast Iowa. Yeah. Huh. No, that's that's really interesting. It's always it's always fascinating to have those real personal connections to figures like this. Yep. And I know you've presented on Corin before for various things in the ELS. Can you can you let our audience know some of whom may not be familiar what the EL, ELS is? Can you kind of give them a quick overview of 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 that church body? Yeah. In um, 1853, there was a synod founded called the Norwegian Synod, and that was the gathering of Norwegians in America 
who really connected with the Church of Norway in the history and the ritual and the confessions, the teachings of the Church of Norway, which is which was at least a part of it was a confessional church. There were other branches within within because it was a state church, you know. Mm -hmm. But there were lots of controversies in the 1800s, and the synod went through many different difficulties. And finally, in 1917, there was a big merger of a lot of the Norwegian Lutherans in America. They were trying to get all of them together. And there was a small little group that stayed out, and that was what became the ELS. And so in 1918, they established what they called the Norwegian Synod of the American Evangelical Lutheran Church, and was always referred to as the Little Norwegian Synod, carrying on the same heritage and the same teachings, and kept in fellowship with the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod at that time, and the Slovak Synod, part of the Synodical Conference. So that's our heritage. And so we really view ourselves in the ELS, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, as a continuation of the Norwegian Synod. I know uh, my own personal history. I, I grew up in eastern Montana, and even though I have a German name, I have a fair amount of Scandinavian heritage. And I know that uh, my the church that I grew up in came out of probably the, the bigger and the merged uh, Norwegian synod. So this is a little bit of my history, too, just kind of from the other side. <laughs> well, and, and actually, my heritage goes back to the Union Church in the sense that all of my family, if they were Norwegian synod, went with the merger. Sure. And so it was later on that my family came to uh, what was the Wisconsin Synod then, and then or what what is the Wisconsin Synod, and and then in through my studies I learned about the ELS and and found a great fit for myself. Wonderful, yeah, wonderful. I also came to the LCMS and in college as well. Mm -hmm. But we've kind of been dancing around the subject here a little bit, and now I think it might be time to really get into it because talking about the early Norwegian Synod and the history of that inevitably involves a discussion of our main topic, which is UV Corin. Can you give our listeners just a brief brief overview of who he is real quick before we go into a lot more detail about his life? I mean, who would you say that he is? He was one of the leaders of the Norwegian Synod and served the pioneers that came over here from Norway and, and really helped to establish Norwegian Lutheranism in America. He, along with Hermann Amberg Preuss and Jakob Ol Ottesen. Those were the three great leaders of the Norwegian Synod in the early days. What can, what can we learn from him? Why is he important for us today? Not just for the ELS. I mean, obviously, you guys have a, a big interest in him. But what can we as Lutherans in general and confessional Lutherans learn from UV Koren? He had a very strong commitment to the Lutheran confessions, and he was very close friends with Walther and Missouri Synod people, Wisconsin Synod people all through. It was a, it was a great fit for them. The, Norwegian Synod, the Norwegians, when they came over here, they didn't have any way to establish their church. They didn't have any pastors except a few that came over from Norway. And so they had to find a way to serve these thousands of immigrants that had come to America. Another thing we can learn from Korn, I think, is he was a very careful and biblical theologian. He he was very careful not to say more or less than what Scripture said. And he lived through very difficult times, but always held to Scripture, even when it meant that people were railing against him. And, and he took it pretty gently and persisted in the truth. So let's let's dig into his life a little bit then. Obviously, he was born in Norway and came over. So can you tell me... Tell us something a little bit about what Norway was like, both religiously in his time 
and also maybe kind of in the, the secular realm as well, because obviously something was driving the Norwegians to come to America and all the things that kind of f- form the background of U- UV Corin. Yeah, Norway for a long time was under the control of Denmark. And in 1814, they were able to have their own constitution and they were put under Sweden, but at least they had their own constitution and could make their own laws. They established a university finally in 1811. The first university in Norway was 1811, which is much later. Norway was a very poor country. They had been devastated by the Black Death, and there wasn't really any nobility. There was an educated class, there was a merchant class, but no nobility or anything like that. Sure. In the 1840s, well, I guess what was happening there was the same as happening all over Europe, which was rationalism was taking over. And most of the pastors and bishops were rationalists and didn't believe in the miracles of the Bible and were trying to mix in, you know, psychology and or other disciplines anyway into religion. And it wasn't really a biblical Christianity in, in many of them. But there were places in Norway where the church was a little stronger as far as having a biblical background. And that was one of the reasons that the Haugi movement came about was because Haugi wanted, he saw this this problem of rationalism and he wanted to bring the people back to a more mm-hmm. biblical Christianity. And so this pietistic idea came through and that did do some good things. Maybe just to stop you for a second, just for for our audience's sake, can you tell us a little bit about Hans Nielsen Haugi and who he was and what he was doing? Yeah, he was a lay preacher, and he saw that the pastors weren't really serving the people, and so he was going around and and having separate meetings. They they couldn't preach in the church, and he couldn't actually organize in the church or anything, but mm-hmm. they were kind of alongside because they couldn't leave the church. It was a state church. It was a really crazy kind of thing to an American mind. It just doesn't make any sense to us, but that's the way it was. And so they would have these meetings and they would talk about the Bible and they would do studies and they became then very emotional also and pietistic and talking about themselves sometimes more than about the scriptures at times. (laughs) But at least it was pointing people to scripture rather than to science or something that... We don't look to for religion. Yeah, all of the, I mean, the the devastation of rationalism kind of drove Hauge to do what he did. I mean, we might still say he wasn't, you know, totally right in doing so. I mean, you know, in the basis with our confessions, but he was at least trying to address a very difficult situation. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes. And, but then his followers went so far and, and so that became a separate different group in America and that was one of the things that when Corin came over, he had to deal with that because those people were holding their own meetings and didn't really like the pastors because they looked at the pastors as being snooty and these educated people who, you know, many of them had gone to Denmark instead of studying in Norway. Well, they couldn't study in Norway that much. Uh, they could a little bit, but it wasn't the same. Sure. And so there was this divide of the educated class and the peasant class or the farmer class, which was mostly what came over here. Sure. But where Corin lived, there was a little more influence of the conservative ideas of pietism, but still a little more biblical than in some areas than the, what pietism is in other places in, in Norway. Sure. And then also in the 18, 1840s or so, there were 
there was a confessional movement that got started at the university in Oslo through the work of Gisli Jonsson and Paul Karl Kaspari. They were very important. Kaspari came from Germany. He was a Jewish convert to Lutheranism. And huh. they were the ones who translated the Book of Concord. And that became something that the, the Norwegians then could study more thoroughly. They, of course, had it in Latin and German, and they could read that as far as the pastors. But this was something that became more among the common people then, too. Sure. And so this is the time that Korn is living in Norway. And and the people that came over here divided into different groups. You know, there were the, the Church of Norway people or the Norwegian Synod people on one side who held to the hymn book and the liturgy and the basic teachings of Christianity mm-hmm. and Lutheranism as we think of it. And then there were the, the Haugians or other little groups like that who were more emotional and I'm going to tell you what the spirit tells me and how I feel. And I'm very fervent in my faith. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to drink because I'm not going to drink alcohol because, you know, that might lead me astray and, and different things. There's just a lot of legalism that comes in with that too, of course. What was, what was it in the, in the world or maybe in the, the secular realm that was driving people to move away from Norway in the first place? Well, I think Norway now was having a little better economic times as far as the population was growing mm-hmm. and people were able to have larger families and then there wasn't enough land. And so far, farmers were sending their sons or the sons were coming over here or finding places to live because there just wasn't a lot of opportunity in Norway that, you know, it's a very mountainous country and then the fjords. And so there isn't a lot of place that you can do tilling and agriculture. The place where I grew up in Wisconsin was very hilly and it reminds one of, of Norway with the fjords and the mountains. And <laughs> and people joke with me that I have one leg shorter than the other just because I walked on the hills so much, but <laughs> I don't think that's quite true. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, we're in a pretty hilly terrain over here too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Okay. Well, no, that makes sense. Because I know historically, too, even as far back as the Viking period, a lack of arable land was always an issue in Norway. Yep. So, I mean, it, that's just a perennial problem in that part of the world. Yep. So, Corin himself, though, I mean, obviously, he chooses to come over to America. Uh, what what drives him to do that, finally? What does is, what is his early life look like in Norway, and what makes him come over? He was educated as a pastor, and... He could have had a life there, but I think when he heard about what was going on in America, that there were all these people who needed pastors, he was drawn to that idea. And then he actually was issued a call from congregations or a group of people in Northeast Iowa, the most Northeastern counties of Iowa. And they said, we want you to come and serve us and bring us the word of God, preach to us and do all the the things that pastors do. And he heard that and I think that really was something he felt he could do and would be a, a service to the, his fellow Norwegians in America. Yeah, and and so you think it's just primarily out of a sense of duty that he's coming over? I mean, he's not really trying to get away from anything? Or, I mean, I mean I'm just looking for your opinion on this here, on how you would... His, his state of mind, I guess. I, I think he felt compelled because he was convinced of the scriptures and mm-hmm. and said, I want to serve as a pastor and these people need a shepherd and I can I can do that. Yeah, no, and that and that would have been a, a pretty big step for him to come over to America like that. But uh what what do you think we can learn from 
from him doing that? I mean, how would we apply that to our own situation? I guess serve where you're called. Sure. Have a have a love for the work you're doing and the people knowing that they are fellow Christians, they need to hear that comfort of the gospel and guidance through the catechism and the the scriptures. He, you know, he he left a place where he was living among educated people and people that had a fairly decent life. And he came to a cabin that was 14 by 16 feet big for the first few months that they lived here. The parsonage wasn't ready. So he, he really gave up a lot. But one of the things when he finally gets here, then he finds in America that people have so much opportunity. Whereas in Norway, the, the, Common people could not have much of an opportunity to be educated. They were kind of tied to the land. They were tied to their farm. And when he gets here, he hears this young American quoting Latin as he's driving him along in the in the wagon. It was a it was an eye opening thing for him. And also, the class distinctions were not not here at all, whereas you had that in Norway. Sure. Yeah. So it'd be quite a quite a shock for him, I think. And like you say, if nothing else, just to the change social conditions which is something I think we should talk about in more detail on the other side of the break. But is there anything that you want to add about his early life or about the background in in Europe before we uh, go into a break? You can see the rationalism for the story that happened when he was being questioned for confirmation, uh, when he had his catechization for confirmation. The question he was asked was, what kind of blood is there in a fish? What? And he was, yeah. <laughs> and he was supposed to say it's red and cold. Okay. And then it says the bishop or the pastor moved on to the next boy, the next student. And so the confirmation instruction was terrible that he had gotten, but he Oof. did know people. He did know the catechism and he did know the scriptures as a, as a young lad anyway. Yeah, we might we might gripe about catechetical instruction in our own day, but man alive, it's nothing like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we'll be right back after a short break for more Word Fitly Spoken. A Word Fitly Spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zoan Heidi, here today with uh, Mark DeGarmo talking about UV Corin. So before the break, Mark, we were talking about the background in uh, Europe and everything that was going on in Norway, but we also sort of hinted at how Corin came over after he was called to serve in the American scene. But I think it's worth asking, 
What did that scene look like? I mean, what kind of things was Corin coming into and what were the, the challenges that religiously and maybe even physically that he had to face while serving as a pastor here in America? Yeah, well, just the trip itself was a major undertaking. It took many weeks to cross the ocean and then they had to, you know, come across over to the Midwest. He came through Wisconsin and he talks, his wife wrote a diary called the Diary of Elizabeth Corn, And it's a wonderful little read about their journey and the trip over here and getting to Iowa, you know, and they arrived in December oh, and geez. they're going there, you know, with wagons and horses and they're being driven to pastor's homes. And then when they get to the Mississippi River, they have to make sure that it's frozen enough that they can walk across and pull a wagon across to get into <laughs> Iowa. It's a crazy thing. And and Elizabeth even has some drawings of the cart, of him pulling the cart and everything. It, it's an interesting thing. And Corin himself wrote about that too. He has a document called like Remembrances or something like that. And it's very interesting to imagine. And then they get sure. to this house finally. And I it must have been crazy trying to figure out how do we go and well, you go this, you know, they stop at one house and then they say, well, go this this way to the next house because there were no roads, really. And it was amazing that they made the journey <laughs> in winter. And so he gets there and it's this little cabin, 14 by 16, because the parsonage wasn't ready. And he lived with this. He and his wife lived with this other family, this other couple. Oh, and that night he had to sit down and write his sermon because the next day was going to be Christmas and he needed to write his sermon and he had to prepare. And all he had with him was his Bible, basically, and his, and his liturgy book. And he talks about turning over a cup and pouring wax in and having a little wick there so he could see to write. Wow. And for, for both of them who lived in homes that had much better situation, this was quite a shock, I'm sure. But they came to love the American people or the Norwegian people in America and the sure. American people around them as well. So when he then goes around, he has to go around to different gatherings, different settlements of the Norwegians. You know, there was one over by Waterville, Wakan, the Paint Creek congregations. And then he served at Washington Prairie near Decorah. And then he would go down to what was called, I think it was called, was it Whiskey Grove or something that that is Calmer today? And then over to what became Saudi and Jericho and Crane Creek and, and all these little places. So eventually the places he served were about 80 congregations later on, served by many, many oh, wow. pastors, even up into Southeast Minnesota. So it was quite a thing. And he just would travel for a few weeks and to this area, to that area, and then come home for a while. And then you go back out. It was, I can't imagine how grueling it was. Especially with no roads and you're and riding a horse the whole time, I'm sure. Yeah, and, yeah you know, he had yeah. to find, he had to find a way to map his parish. So he knew where people lived and he <laughs> learned about American counties and things like that. So that was an interesting thing. And one of his concerns, too, was, you know, there were the different types of Norwegians, Norwegian Lutherans or whatever here. But there were also Methodists and other groups that were kind of pulling away some of the Norwegians. You know, this is, this is the time of Mormonism, too. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of Scandinavian names in the Mormon church, a lot of Methodists. And so he was very concerned that we, you know, serve these Norwegian Lutherans and continue in their traditional faith. Because it's the truth, not because, you know, of the 
ethnic thing, but because right. of scripture. And I, I suppose since in the West at that time, or I mean, what was the West at that time, um, you know, the, the Mormons and the, the Methodists were very active in getting into these areas, probably a lot quicker than the Lutherans. I mean, were there any other Lutherans in the area that were with Corin, or was he kind of by himself? I think in that part, there were there were a lot of Norwegians, and so that was the predominant Lutheran group in many areas. There were some German Lutherans in different parts of of the area as well, but you know the language barrier was a an issue. Sure, and they had different ways that they did things, but the language was a huge barrier for for quite a while, and they wanted to continue. You know, they wanted to serve the Norwegian people with the things that they knew, right? And their their heritage and liturgy go back to really Bugenhagen bringing the Reformation up to Denmark and Norway in fifteen thirty six thirty seven. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's an unbroken Lutheran heritage all the way back. Right, right. But you you had also mentioned that he was dealing with different kinds of Norwegians, and I think. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about in another important figure at that time, uh, Elling Eilson, if I'm pronouncing that correct. Yep. Yeah. And and I guess he was of that Haugian idea of, you know, anybody can stand up and preach. He believed in lay preaching. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was just pietism brought over here in its own way. Mm-hmm. And, and Korn had to deal with that, but... He mostly just tried to gather the the people that he that he knew were of the Norwegian Lutheran Church as he knew it, and he he had to contend with them in debates and articles, you know, in journals and everything. But he he really focused on serving the the Norwegian synod people. He was the first Norwegian Lutheran pastor to live and settle west of the Mississippi River. That's a pretty interesting thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. There had been some preachers that had gone through and did a few services and everything, but he was the first one who actually settled and lived then west of the Mississippi, and that's 1853 is when he came over, so pretty early. So you're thinking that even though he's having to deal with all of these different groups, like the the, piet- the more pietistically inclined groups, you think that he's more just interested in gathering people together? I mean, is that kind of what you're getting at here? I think so. I, You know, I mean, he had to deal with it, but... He tried to stay focused on his work as pastor in preaching and confirming, you know, catechizing and all of that. Well, in such a huge area to cover. Yeah, I mean, that would be a job all in itself. So, yeah. And and one of his things was to bring other pastors over, but that didn't go so well. They just, the Norwegian pastors wouldn't, didn't want to leave their positions in Norway, they, you know, had a fairly decent life there and they knew about the prairies and the pioneers. It was not a an easy life over here. And so they had to figure out how are we going to get pastors for these thousands and thousands of people who are coming over. Very early on, they searched around for other Lutherans mm-hmm. and they went out east and met with people there. And they were, you know, close with the general council, which were a little bit more conservative on the on the eastern coast there, but mm-hmm. still not quite what they were used to from their education. And then they also went and connected with the Missouri Synod in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And there they found people who taught the same, believed the same, practiced the same in, in church liturgy and church discipline and church, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. And and so 
because the Missouri Synod had a seminary, then they said, we can send our people here for a while. Sure. And that's what the, that's what they did. They established a professor who was the professor for the Norwegian students down there, but the students also took all the classes, you know, and they had to learn German and probably and Latin, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But they had a very close relationship with the Missouri Synod very early on. Walther and Corin were very good friends. They they wrote letters back and forth. I don't know that all of them have been translated yet, and that would be great to see a little bit more of that, but very highly esteemed both directions. Did did he converse with Walther in English or in Latin or, or what? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out the language barrier here. <laughs> uh, well, Corin knew German. Oh, Corin knew German. Course. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if Walther learned Norwegian at all, but they, <laughs> when they wrote back and forth, they wrote in German usually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just, I had to ask because, you know, we're, yeah. <laughs> cultural difference there. Yeah. Well, no, that's, no, that's interesting though. I mean, did they interact with Missouri in any other major way in, in those early times? Or, I mean, obviously sending your students down to the seminary is a, is a major, major thing. So, I mean, kindred spirits certainly, but I mean, how else did they interact with each other? I think there were godparent relationships between some of them. And I don't know all the details of that, but they were very close in family way to also. Okay. And then when Corin was able to establish Luther College near Decorah, you know, its first year was up in Wisconsin, but Luther College in Decorah about 1861. Then not long after, Walther recommends someone to come and be a professor at Luther College from the Missouri Synod. And so there were ties back and forth like that. Sure. All through. Sure. But I think one of the things that Corin had to do was just figure out how do we pay the pastors? How do we organize congregations? Because they were used to taxes and church, state church. And so he had to figure out all of that. And so that became a, a part of his work as well. Well, and, it, and obviously he's going on to serve in very important capacities in the early Norwegian Synod, even in the little bit later prior to the, the merger. How else did he eventually serve in 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 the Senate. He was uh, Senate secretary for one year, just one year, but he served on the, the church council, which was like an overseeing body. I don't know if we have anything that we can compare that to directly. He was vice president of the Synod for some years. He was Iowa district president for a while, and then finally president of the Norwegian Synod, 1894 to 1910 at his death. He also served as one of the editors, kind of the main editor in some ways of the Norwegian Synod hymn book. Okay. And that was an interesting thing because hymns were very important to him. When you read his sermons, he's quoting hymns to reinforce the points of doctrine that he makes. And hymns were important to him. He didn't want to have, you know, the sappy stuff. He wanted good, solid doctrinal hymns. Sure. And he was kind of a repristinationist in that way. He held to the old stuff. <laughs> Because in 1869, there was a hymn book that came out in Norway, and that's a loved hymn book, very much loved. But Corin was wanted to be a little bit more old-fashioned, and so the Norwegian Synod put its own hymn book together just a few years later than that. But when he came over, he was using a hymn book, I'm very sure, that was from 1699, Kingo hymn book. Oh, and that was okay. amazing to think of how long that history is. It was a very important thing. And Kingo's hymns are some of the most beloved among us 
and also among others, you know, you know, on my heart imprint thine image. He that believes in is baptized, or all who believe in are baptized. And like the golden sun ascending, there are there are very great treasures of Scandinavian hymnody that are known not even not only in Lutheran circles, but there are a few of them that have crossed the denominational barriers into other congregations, other denominations here in America and in, in the English translations. This is just kind of a side note. Did he also use a Pantopidens catechism or did he bring over a different one? I think he probably had Pantopidens or some revision of it. Okay. Yeah, Pantopidens was the one that was pretty much used generally. And there were a couple different revisions of that or, yeah, excerpts of it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, and that was their childhood faith, as he talks about it. He calls it Barne Lerdom, your your childhood education. You learned the catechism. And and Pantapidon's catechism was highly regarded among Danish and Norwegian people too. Mm-hmm. There are some stories about how precise they were, and I'm saying it this way because that's the way it is in Pantapidon's catechism. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I, I had to ask is because I, I did a research on early pietism and it kind of delved at one point into Pandapadan. And so I, I just, I thought I'd make that little tie in. It was interesting because I think when I was in seminary, we kind of had this thing of Pantapidan, how he was, he was trouble and this is a problem. <laughs> and then when you read Koran, he says, we learned a lot from Pantapidan. And the thing that people misunderstood about him, what he said, you can understand it correctly, sure. but you can also misunderstand it. And so we always have to take things the way they're written. Yeah, Pantapidan had had some issues, but his catechism is fairly solid. Yeah. His catechism explanation. And we're always, I think that was one of the great things about the Norwegian Synod and <laughs> and the ELS too, is we don't call it a catechism. We call it the explanation of the catechism. It's always very clear. <laughs> An explanation of Martin Luther's catechism. Because students misunderstand this idea of, oh, Luther's catechism, it's that big, thick book. Well, no, that's just a few pages of what Luther wrote. And then we add all these questions and answers besides. Yeah, we, we in the Missouri Synod just produced a, a brand new explanation of the catechism. So there's, so I understand completely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, very good, though. Well, I think it would be important, though, I mean, with all of the things that Corin has been doing, to mention how he's also instrumental in guiding the Norwegian Synod through a very difficult controversy, which was going on in the late 1800s. Listeners may remember that we talked about this controversy in an earlier episode dealing with uh, the Wauwatosa theologians, but I think it's also worth revisiting because we didn't cover it in a whole lot of detail. And that is the election controversy in the late 1800s. Mark, what, what is the election controversy in a nutshell? I want to go back a little bit earlier. That's fine. Because that was just one of many controversies. Okay. There was a controversy over slavery. There was controversy over the gospel, over absolution. Does absolution absolutely give you or truly give you forgiveness? Or does it just tell you about forgiveness? You know, there were many different controversies about whether the Sunday has to be the day that we worship or not. And so the Norwegian Synod had lived through many of these things, dealing with churches around them and various views among other Norwegian Lutherans. But then the election controversy or the predestination controversy was the big one that really caused great, great difficulty. And I don't know how much detail I really want to get into, but Walther had said some things about 
election or predestination that some people read this and thought, what is he really saying? And and one of the people that questioned Walther and actually accused him of Calvinism was F.A. Schmidt. F.A. Schmidt was the guy that Walther had recommended to be professor at Luther College in Decorah. Okay. And so this guy who was his dear friend, in a sense, turns on him. And, and I think misunderstands what Walther was saying. Walther was not a Calvinist. Walther right. was talking about free grace and, and the certainty of salvation. And F.A. Schmidt tended to put things, couch things a little bit differently. And so this whole election controversy is, how do we know, or why is it that some are saved and, and not others? And it's an unanswerable question. We just have to leave it. And I think that's what Corin does. He says, we just have to leave it with what scripture says. Sure. And so the way I tend to think of it is when Corin talks about predestination and election, it is we simply say salvation is only through God's grace and from God alone through the gift of faith. He gives us faith and he then has chosen us in his divine wisdom for salvation, but he doesn't choose people for condemnation or anything like that. And because of these statements, people questioned whether Corin and Walther were Calvinists or not. Now, on the other side, you had F.A. Schmidt, and they had to try and explain, well, what, you know, Corin left it as a dilemma and a, and a paradox. Schmidt tried to explain it. We have to find, there has to be something. There has to be some difference in people's behavior or their attitude or something that caused God to choose them. And that's where the problem is when you're bringing in some kind of human cooperation or human activity to contribute to salvation. And that's what Corin said we cannot. We have to say that salvation is completely the work of God. Otherwise, we have no comfort and no hope. We can't be certain of our salvation mm -hmm. if there's even this little bit that I have to do. And so this caused a huge split in the Norwegian Synod to, to the point that one third of the congregations left. Hmm. Before we get into the split, though, I think it might be worth drawing out a little bit more on the controversy itself. From what I understand, the intuitu fidei, uh, which is the position you were describing of Schmidt, that God looks forward and sees something in us that causes him to choose us, that had a history in the, the Lutheran tradition, though, did it not? Yes, it did, because it was used by Johann Gerhardt. I think it was in Pantapinon's Catechism. That expression can be used, mm -hmm. and it can be used and understood correctly. Sure. But if you, if you say that God looked, you know, in view of my faith, in view of something that I've done, and that causes him to choose me to be saved, there's the problem. Mm -hmm. But for Corin and Walther, it would be in view of faith means this sense of, the way they would view Gerhardt and, and others that used it properly, he saw that faith, but the faith was a gift that God had given them already. It wasn't something that I now choose to believe, you know, and that was such a rampant idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in America, of course, this idea of the free will. And it just, you can't have comfort if I have to do something. Right. And so that, that intuitive fide can be understood correctly, 
but very often it, it is understood incorrectly. And, and that was the problem. So even though both sides are, are having this argument, it's actually like what I was trying to get at, since you have the stream coming out of the tradition, even if it's misunderstood, it's still a, an argument. It's not something that just suddenly popped up. I mean, this is, an, right. this is an argument that's been going on for a while. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and it kept going for, you know, many, many years. It wasn't just, uh, you know, this is three years and we're done. No, it was uh, probably, well, actually decades, because it was already going in the 70s, 1870s, 1880s, mm -hmm. for sure. And it was still a topic of controversy and contention when the Norwegians were trying to unite then in, you know, after 1905 or up to 1910 and 1912, they were trying to make these agreements where we can work together and, and understand this together. And Corin always kept them away from compromising and for, for giving in on that doctrine. And so until he died in 1910, the Norwegian Synod was solid on, on this. And then after he died, it very quickly was moving to, well, we can teach both forms of this doctrine. And, and you're not going to be, you know, uh, persecuted if you hold to the other form. That's okay. Yeah. And, you know, uh -huh. but let's just all get together and be, you know, Lutherans together and, and Norwegians together even. And what, what's the expression nowadays? Bound conscience, I think, is how it goes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. But with that, let's take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. The word of the Lord says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi with Mark DeGarmo talking about UV Corin and the Norwegian Lutherans in America. Now, before the break, we had been talking about the election controversy and been talking about what that all means. But I think that it might be worth talking a little bit more about what Schmidt was actually teaching and why it was a controversy in the first place. So do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, there, there's just this thing that when Schmidt talks about things... I think you'll recognize that some of the things he says are different from what we would think of from the catechism. You know, I think in the ELS, we probably emphasize this idea of the third article. In fact, someone wrote a play about our, our early history in the ELS, and it, the title of the play was, It's Somewhere in the Third Article. So <laughs> it's a great little play. And, you know, that, that beginning line that Luther comes up with that says, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, 
my Lord, nor come to him. But the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel and done all these things. That that distinguishes Lutheranism, I per, think, pretty clearly from a lot of other ideas. Sure. And so Schmidt then says, if two people are converted, there must have been, uh, I'm sorry, if only one of two people are converted, there must have been a difference in how they resisted God or or else they would have been both saved. There had to be something in them that changed that idea. And he says, it's the called person, the one that the Holy Spirit calls, he says, who must make a certain choice between the two possibilities. And, and so he has this different way of talking about it. And, mm-hmm. and I think maybe this is the most condemning thing that he says. Salvation in a certain sense, salvation in a certain sense does not depend on God alone. Oh my. And that is frightening. That is frightening because when you think about what we say as Lutherans, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, mm-hmm. you can't you can't then come up with a statement that says salvation in a certain sense does not depend on God alone, but then it has to depend on man. But you read the scriptures and it's always God's work and not ours. And that's our great comfort. Well, I could certainly see how that would be a more I don't know if you want to call it a satisfying answer because it it seems it makes sense, right? Yeah, reason reason coming in, you know, Luther talks about and Corin talks about the two lights, the light of reason and the light of grace. And we use our reason, but our human mind is limited. And so our, our human mind can't understand all of the theology and doctrine that, that God wants to tell us about, all of his will and his mind and his revelation. And that's why he gives us grace in the means of grace. And he reveals himself to us in scripture. And, you know, when he's dealing with those things, then we simply trust what God says. And we use our human reason to understand the words and all of that. But when we come to faith, it is by God's grace and not of our own reasoning and rationality. We know this teaching in our hymns and in how we think about things. There's this wonderful hymn that we sing, and this is the second stanza, I think it is, second or third stanza. You know, the hymn is, Blessed Jesus at thy word. And the second stanza says, All our knowledge, sense, and sight lie in deepest darkness shrouded. Till thy spirit breaks our night with the beams of truth, the scripture unclouded. Thou alone to God canst win us. Thou must work all good within us. That's the teaching of how we're converted and saved. This conversion and election is all the work of God. And that's the teaching of the Norwegian Synod of Koran, of the Missouri Synod on Walther, and all of confessional Lutheranism. That's our, our comfort and our hope. Amen. Well, I mean, and maybe it's worth asking then, Corin's involvement with all of this, how does he respond and, you know, what, what does he actually write in response to what Schmidt is saying over and against Walther? He wrote lots of articles in Norwegian journals and, and newspa- kind of newspapers in America and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and people were attacking him and they were starting their own journals to go against Walther and Corin and and they were responding. So there's all kinds of articles that you can read in the the periodicals that were coming out from that time. It's It gets to be very detailed, but they really lay out the controversy very carefully about who said what and and why and, and, and what it really comes down to. And then he says, we really need to tell our people what this is all about. Okay. And so one of the things that happened is, like I said, a third of the congregations eventually leave the Norwegian Synod. And so here they are 
trying to continue on and seeing the sadness of those other people. And and actually one of the groups that formed was called the Anti-Missourian Brotherhood, which is just <laughs> such a, you know, such a handy name. We're, we're against Missouri. That's it. That's um, all we need to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but that group then merged eventually. That's the group that eventually started St. Olaf College up in Northfield. And so their, their view is a little different. And the Norwegian Synod, but because they were dealing with all these internal controversies, the Norwegian Synod stepped out of the Synodical Conference for a while. You know, the Synodical Conference was that, that group that had come together in 1872 of Norwegian Synod, Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod, Minnesota Synod. I don't remember all the, the other ones that were, you know, because some sure. of those have merged together now. But it was the confessional Lutherans. And so the Norwegian Synod said, we need to step out of this organization now. They continued in fellowship and can, and continued their friendships and everything, interaction with, with the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod and the Slovak Synod and everybody. Mm-hmm. But in order to focus on their internal problems, they just had to step out for a while. And sure. But that, that close connection to a Missouri and everything, I think you see later on at Corin's death because people are making speeches who were... Missouri Synod people who are making speeches at Corin's death, they still recognize him as, as a brother in the faith. And then Corin says, we have to now also make this known to the people what, mm-hmm. what has happened. We owe congregations, and he says, an accounting. And that's the title of the document then. The Norwegian term is en re de jurse, an accounting. <laughs> Everybody's good said it, yeah? yeah re de jurse, uh, an accounting of what's, what's going on. And he's very clear in laying out the doctrine of scripture in four parts of that document. And it's just the same things that we are familiar with. He talks about the grace of God is universal. It's for all people. God wants all people to be saved. He's quoting scripture all the time. He points to, you know, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He he just always drives scripture, always these very familiar Bible passages that ex- illustrate the teaching. Mm-hmm. And he talks about conversion and how when we say, I believe, it's in response to hearing the gospel. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the means of grace, you know, how do we come to faith? It is through the work of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace in baptism, in the word, and so on. And he just, he's very strong about that. And when he gets to the doctrine of election, he says, we can't use our human reason. We have to go by what scripture says, that we are saved by grace alone. And that's where I was kind of thinking of the three, the solas of the Reformation sure. too. Where, yeah. And and I think and I think the reason that is so important for him, and that's his fourth point in in the document and accounting, okay. is is that this is how we have certainty of salvation, and that I think is something I learned probably best in seminary from you know Peeper's dogmatics, which we used. Mm-hmm. There was that that always always loved the Latin terms, of course, monstrum incertitudinis, the monster of uncertainty. <laughs> you know, you have to be certain of your salvation. Otherwise how what do you do? You live your life in fear. And or you you try and do your best and you just never feel that you can get there. And that I think is Corin's pastoral work coming through. He wants the people to be assured that just like the thief on the cross, Christ has done it all. It is finished and it is given to you. And when God chooses you, it is his gift of faith given to you and his gift of salvation. Otherwise, we just would live a life of fear, I'm afraid. Now, has that document been translated? 
into English? It is. It's just not available a lot. I think it's probably, if you search for an accounting by Corn, I'm sure it's on some web, many websites by now. Somewhere. Yeah. And it was in some of our history books of our synod. And then, you know, Corin's works now are in English. And so it's available in th- in those volumes as well. Now, I know you had also mentioned that he wrote a similar document on the similar subject, uh, Can Not a Christian Be Certain of His Salvation? Can you yeah. talk about that one a little bit? I don't, I don't have a lot more to say about it, except that it is just, it is written for this comfort of the individual. And just the title of it says so much, Can and Ought a Christian to be Certain of Salvation? And Corin says, absolutely, because scripture says so, and because of the work of Christ, because it is not our work, but it is God's work. I think he sees that in in his people. That's what he wants his people to know. He doesn't want them to be thinking that they're better than other people because they don't do certain things. Or, or we're all sinners. We're all beggars. We're all just recipients of God's grace. And because of that, we can have that certainty and that hope. I, I think that was such a comfort to me in in seminary, as I said, that just to know that this, I, it's not me. It's not me. And so that title, I think, and and that document, when you read through it, it it just gives you that comfort, and that's 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 its purpose. And and it is, I mean, with all these good things that Corin has done or did, I should say, I mean, it's still kind of sad that the the Norwegian Synod continued to go on down a track of unionism and and division. I mean, despite his best efforts, I mean, we can still give thanks to God for what He did for the Norwegians. But is there anything that you want to talk about towards the end of his life? Anything that you feel is important that we should know about him as he, as before the Lord called him home? Well, I think he, his purpose was to keep the Norwegian Synod on the straight and narrow as long as he could. And he, and he did that in, in a very firm, mm-hmm. but sincere way. He was well loved. The, when you read tributes to him of people who attended Luther College or various things. They they speak highly of him. They they had affectionate names for him when he was would visit at Luther College. You know, he just lived a few miles out of town at uh, Washington Prairie. And he would visit the campus a lot. And and he kind of was this old fashioned guy to them and dressed in a different way than what they were used to. And so they called him Gum Likorin, old Corin. There's old Corin, but they never said it if you read the tributes, they never said it in a ridiculing way. It was always affectionately. And he really spoke to the students at Luther College several times. There are some interesting things. He he gave a speech in 1901 on Abraham Lincoln's birthday. You know, and Corin talks about when he heard the news about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. He just couldn't believe it. And so that was a very that's a very powerful address that he gave. And he also, he, he was so into Christian education. You know, he spoke at Luther College several times. He talk at, spoke at Luther Seminary, which had different, was moved around to a couple different places, mm-hmm. but ended up in St. Paul. And he spoke at Red Wing Ladies Seminary. They had a finishing school for women and, you know, where they learned music and art and business and all kinds of things. And he thought that was a great, important thing and he spoke at a Lutheran high school in Albert Lee, which, you know, it's one that's not known, but it was an important thing. He really thought highly of Christian education. He says, how are we going to make citizens in this land? They need to know the truths of scripture. They need to know 
how we deal with other people, mm-hmm. how we interact with each other in a, in a civil and Christian way. During his lifetime, he was very well loved and very well honored shortly after it changed. But sure. he was recognized by the Missouri Synod because on the 50th anniversary of his ordination or in commemoration of that in 1903, he received an honorary doctorate from Cordia Seminary in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. He received the Order of St. Olaf medal, kind of was knighted by the King of Norway in 1903 also. He was definitely known worldwide among confessional Lutherans and among Norwegians. He was certainly known for who he was. Yeah, it's almost it's almost a shame that he's kind of slipping into a bit of obscurity then. I mean, I think he deserves to be better known than he is. And and that's one of the reasons that I've tried to make his works known, you know, through translation and that, because his stuff was locked. There were, there were some things translated, but a lot of it was still locked up in Norwegian. For most people, they don't read Norwegian. And, mm-hmm. and so that's important for us. And it's available now. And I think that's great. But I think, you know, if we want to think about what do we learn from Corin, I think to be very careful theologians and to say what scripture says, not less, not more the certainty of salvation. And and I think maybe you can see that on his tombstone. If you go and see the, the monument near his grave, you will see the synod's motto, it is written in Greek, Gegraptai, and you will see Koren's own motto, all by grace, that written in Norwegian, alt av nåde. And those two sayings really tell us who Koren was and his importance. You know, he pointed to scripture and everything coming by the grace of God. He he's, was well-known and well-loved. Sadly, after the merger, his work sat unread, un, unused, and so that someone from Bethany went down and, and had them, you know, bought them all up and had them sent up here. So we had them, and we've been able to distribute them for, for decades since then, <laughs> uh, if you read Norwegian. One, here's, a, here's a little interesting tidbit. When I first served my parish down in northeast Iowa, Paint Creek, East and West Synod Lutheran uh, churches in Waterville and Wacan, Iowa. Mm-hmm. One of the members there on his nightstand had Corin's sermons and he read them every week. After Corin died, his son published four volumes of his works and the first volume of sermons. And he was still reading. This was in the 1980s. Huh. And so that's a wonderful thing that Corin was still comforting that man and, and a neat thing. Well, and I, I hope that I know that you've translated uh, those works, and I hope that that becomes more widely available so that, like you say, so that Corin is, is better known, and, and I think we can learn a great deal from him. So is there anything then in, in closing then that you'd like to, to add or anything you'd like to say before we wrap it up? We can learn from Corin in many different ways. And I, when I speak to other groups, sometimes I speak to like Sons of Norway groups, so you know, the theology isn't the main thing for them. Mm-hmm. We can learn from him about our country. He always talked about, he always considered himself a Norwegian. I actually don't know if he ever became an American citizen. Oh. I'm, I'm assuming he did, but I don't know. But he always spoke about the Norwegian, our people, our Norwegian people in this land. He loved America. He loved America deeply. And, you know, during the Civil War, that was a question, but the government came and questioned the, the professors at Luther College on their views. And no, they were they were with the Union. They were glad to see the <laughs> abolition of slavery. Sure. You know, I mean, th- because, but see, the thing was, Corin was very careful in how he said it. And so 
people were misunderstanding and saying, oh, he's pro-slavery. You can find websites that say Corrin was pro-slavery. He wasn't. If you read what he says, he's clearly not for slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's a real little thing. But he also knew that when, when the Civil War was over, we were going to have issues among the races. And he predicted and, and his predictions came true. You know, we're still dealing with it 150 years later. And he said, this is, this is still going to be an issue. So it was amazing his foresight in that and, and how he, you know, wanted people to understand each other. Well, being a man that, you know, sought peace, but not at the expense of truth, I think that's a, a fitting way of describing who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you being on here with us. Glad you were able to to talk about Corin and to hopefully make him a little bit better known to all kinds of Lutherans who and others who, who listen to our podcast. This has been a word fitly spoken. We hope you enjoyed it. A hearty thanks to Professor Mark DeGarmo, Professor of Religious Studies at Bethany Lutheran College in Mankato, Minnesota. If you'd like to hear more Word Fitly, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, our Facebook discussion group, Word Fitly Posting, or on Twitter at Word Fitly. Just a reminder, if you want to follow the podcast, you can also find it on any of the popular podcasting apps, iTunes, Podbeans, whatever the cool kids are using today. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills and Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless.